I'm Charlie Redding. And I'm Laura Siddall. And this is the Triathlon Podcast. Well, I did do some cycling, you know, because it's, I'm not that keen on it. I didn't really do a huge amount. So I definitely didn't go into the expedition overtrained. <laughs> and was working on the theory of adaptation to get me through it. We know that about 50% of people will have some exposure to suicide in their lifetime. So so it's it's a fairly universal experience in some ways. And yet... We never talk about it. That was Sarah Davis and Tara Lau, and this episode is Pedals and Paddles. Hey Sid, how are you doing? I'm, I'm very good, Charlie. How are you? How was I? Well, I'd forgotten before the weekend you were racing until I saw your picture on Instagram coming down the finish shoot at Outlaw Triathlon, looking. <laughs> pretty happy and stoked to be back so how was it <laughs> it was awesome it was it was really good I have to say I said to uh, so I was doing it with uh, a mate of mine that is um that we're planning to do um Ironman Tallinn together and I reckon I was as stressed in the lead up to it as I've been before almost any other triathlon but just because a it's been ages since I've done one b there's a whole load of new logistics with with COVID yeah. that you're just kind of almost expecting to put to put your foot the wrong side of the line somewhere on. And then the other thing, because of those logistics, I mean, I think normally we'd have just said we'll stay in a hotel, or we'd have just got there and checked up, you know, check the bike in. But we, I mean, I was up at three thirty on Sunday morning to to get to the start line, and and I'd had rubbish night's sleep the night before. You stayed. You stayed at home then. Yeah. And then drove it round. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was an hour's drive, so yeah. In theory, that could have bought me, you know, another forty-five minutes in bed if I'd stayed yeah. in a hotel. But um, yeah. So just so in the lead up, I was quite stressed about it. I was like, but why? I mean, I don't, I'm not racing it seriously. It's, it's a. It's essentially a practice event for, for the Ironman. So I don't know why I was kind of wound up about it. Um, but it was totally brilliant. Uh, it was really good to be racing. Uh, I uh, met a few people that I've spoken to on Zoom that but, but met for the first time. So had a good chat with my coach, Ian Dempsey. First time I met him face to face. Good chat with Tim Don. Again, first time to see him in the flesh. And uh, also with Foggy as well, former, former guest. So it's really good to catch up with them and see them race. And yeah, it was just really good fun to be racing. So, and the race itself, how did it go then? Uh, swim went pretty well, actually. I was pretty happy with my swim time. Uh, was it, because um, in the new COVID rules, is it like um, just individual starts? Sort of? Yeah, so they'd got three pontoons and it was um, every sort of five you, seconds somebody was going off. Are you diving in? Yeah, but I mean, actually... So one of the guys that I was with said, I'm not diving. I'm going to be doing a, I'm just going to be doing a a, a belly flop in. But, um, but I mean, actually the pontoon was only a foot off the water level. So the dive in, the dive in was really easy. 
Yeah, but I always lose my goggles when I dive in. Well, that, that's what I would thought. And then I thought, well, bollocks, I'm going to give it a go anyway. And they stayed yeah. on. So There we go. There we go. Totally all right. Good. So the swim. Dive in. Swim was all right. Swim was good. I mean, was, the water was, I think it was 19 degrees, somebody said. So that was really, Barmy. really good. Um, it was a bit um, weedy in places. But um, other than that, swim was really good. And I got out a minute quicker than I expected. Well, I'm actually pretty much bang on what I expected to. So that was fine. Uh, the transition was over a kilometre long. So uh, oh my, my transition times were slightly longer than I'd expected. Yeah. So I like oh, ridiculously long. Um, was it just like individual bikes every two metres then at social distancing? Well, no. I mean, that was it. That's what I thought it was going to be. But there was a bike pretty much. Well, I don't know whether it was a metre. Yeah, I suppose it probably was two metres. But I mean, well, it felt like there wasn't much more than a metre between each bike. Um, and then there was only but just um, two rows or something. Two rows. It was three rows for certain bits and and two rows for other bits. Wow. So yes, flipping long transition. Uh, the bike I didn't do as well on the bike as I would have liked. But if I had listened to what Ian said and <laughs> actually done the training plan he set me, I'd have probably been in far better shape. The, I, the training plan or the race day plan? Training plan. Ah, okay. So stupidly, I had on when on Friday he'd planned a swim in, and I'd totally forgotten. But I I was going to meet um, Chris from uh, Incas uh, Nova to go and do a run with him to to try out the Incas, um, <clears throat> and um, obviously we ran further than we were supposed to and faster than we were supposed to. So therefore, that was a bit um, more than I should have done. And then on Saturday, uh, a bit of a communication uh, or misinterpretation of what Ian was telling me on WhatsApp. But I didn't look again at training peaks after we'd spoken on WhatsApp. So I did twice the distance on the bike that I was supposed to. And I probably worked a bit harder than I was supposed to. <laughs> and yeah, so and so then we had to go and check in on Saturday afternoon. Uh so actually, by Saturday night, I was totally shattered, and yeah, I knew you just I'd drove an hour up, an hour down to check in. Yeah, and then and then, um, so I knew I'd not done quite right, but yeah, so the bike didn't quite have the power I wanted, uh, but I was pretty happy with it, and it was, and I was managing to hold my aero position for most of it, um, which is the so that's probably the second longest ride I've done on the bike since Botty sorted out the um, all the positioning. Uh, and then, yeah, the run, I felt pretty good, actually. The run was my second fastest half marathon. Um, so I was, yeah, the run I was really happy with. Um, so he's, so Ian's <laughs> making some progress with my running, even if I've totally ignored him on the, but I think <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if there's still a bit of fatigue in my legs from my week in the Lake District as well. So, um, yeah. so I, was, I was pretty happy. My transitions were too slow, but then that's because, partly because, You've got like a, 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 a an extra kilometer run. Well, I can't I can't imagine anyone's transitions to that fast with a kilometer run. No, no. But anyway, but the point was, it was brilliant to be racing again. Great fun, really good event, um, really nice uh, venue to do it in, um, and uh, yeah, itching to get on to the next one now, which is only two weeks away. I was going to say, which is when two weeks away. So another outlaw, outlaw, in Holcomb. yeah, Holcomb. Uh, yeah. And we've got, I know that Lucy Char Lucy Charles Barkley was supposed to race at um, 
Outlaw Half, but he's now racing at Holcombe, I think. Um, not sure who else is racing at Holcombe, actually. Um, but uh, yeah, so really looking forward to that. And then I'm yeah, not sure if the... there'll be many people racing at Holcombe because that's the same day as Ironman UK, and most people are going to do <laughs> Ironman UK out of the British pros. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, what? what do you, it was a bit of a faux been... pas. It was a bit of a faux pas of because um, is the Holcombe one the PTO supported? Yes. That's a bit of a faux pas by the PTO for putting it on the same day as another UK race. Yeah. We don't have that many races in the UK and for athletes this year anyway. And will that be why Lucy Charles Barkley is racing um, Outlaw Holcomb as, because it's P, a PTO event? Or I doubt it. it. I think she'll just be, it'll just be what she wants to race for her race season. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was just surprised because obviously it's uh, seventy point three rather than the long. It's a, half, it's a half distance. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, so yeah. So that it was a it was a really good event, and um, yeah, looking forward to it. And and what have what have you what? Oh, and yeah, and it's worth just coming back to this in terms of. Um, so Tim Don finished third, um, which was great to see. Uh, the guy who won it, I didn't know very well, but was uh, Josh Lewis. But apparently he's come in from a swimming background and is making big strides in the triathlon world at a pretty young age. And then on the ladies, I think it was, yeah, Lydia Dant. Uh, I don't know if you, do you know Lydia? I didn't. Yeah, I know of the, well, only through like of social media. So I, there, there weren't any. I think it was an elite wave as far as I can work out. I mean, I think Tim was really the only, I'd say probably professional racing. Um, I think the rest were kind of an elite, elite wave. So that kind of very, very good age groupers probably could turn, could turn pro, but sort of in that middle, middle ground sort of thing, I think it's probably the, in the, with, with trying to give them, you know, great performances and respect they deserve. And Ian Dempsey came in at 20th, which, I think I think I saw his post saying that um, he didn't think it was possible to swim that slow. I haven't <laughs> looked at his time yet. I dare say he, I still swam significantly slower than that. <laughs> um, uh, and um, and actually, a mate of mine, Giles Brook, um, he, who one of the guys I train with, he um, got a podium for age group, so he he got came third. So he was really chuffed with that. So that was good. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it was. It's all good. It sounds uh, like it sounds like a great weekend, and it's like racing's back in the UK. And two weeks we got yeah Holcomb, which would be another another good race for everyone. And hopefully it'll be sort of maybe the similar people going from race to race to. Uh, although yeah, although I think a lot of people will probably be doing Ironman UK that that next weekend and maybe using Outlaw this weekend as a as a preparation for that. Yeah, certainly that's what when I was chatted to Foggy, that was his uh, that's his plan. So yeah, and I know Tim's doing that as well. Yeah, that's Foggy's big race, isn't it? That's his uh, it's that's his yeah. local territory. Yeah, um, which is interesting because they only announced last week that they'd actually got approval to go let it go ahead, which I thought was pretty bold and last minute of them. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean it is it is so crap. I mean we're kind of still trying to work out the the admin around what we do about Tarlin, you know it was supposed to be all of the family going out and now it's probably just me. We were supposed to yeah. be going to New Yorker afterwards, but that looks well, pretty much impossible now. So, um, 
but otherwise I, I was going to potentially have to fly from Tallinn direct to Mallorca and if that was even possible I don't know so yeah I think we're all just accepting very fluid last minute planning at the moment aren't we I know that's not much good for the you guys that have to earn a living out of it yeah that's yeah uh, but I mean it's just yeah it's just cling on to those races that do happen and hope that I mean the US seems to have got its shit together or maybe not but they seem to be having races and fairly confident that they're happening I think Europe and the UK still seems to be a little bit more all over the place um and a bit more fluid or maybe not Europe Europe seems to be actually their races seem to be up and running it's just the Europe and the UK relationship issue of whether people can go in and out um because it's the same like Ironman UK didn't apply or doesn't have so not didn't apply that's the wrong word doesn't have competition exemption for athletes so you know we had the WTS in Leeds a few weeks ago where you had athletes from all over the world coming in yes they bubbled but they didn't have to quarantine for five ten days um they could get out training and then obviously you had a race where you've got 70 80 odd pros draft league also close proximity you had 4,000 in the crowd no social distance no mask Yet for Ironman UK, there is no foreign athletes allowed because you have to quarantine. Well, you are allowed, but you have to quarantine for the five or 10 days per government regulations. And you're talking about an Ironman race, you're talking maybe 15 pros max you'd probably get. Um, Far more spread out. You're not going to get the same crowds. And yet we can't. And it's a 100K prize purse. And yet we can't allow foreign athletes to come and race in the uk so it's just a bizarre situation. would that be the case what about the holcomb half because that's a pto event would that still be same problem i would imagine so i can't see um well unless holcomb have applied for um this competition exemption as i understand it I, which i won't can't imagine they have i think it shows the difference between how WTS racing is perceived on the world stage in the Olympics and how long course racing is perceived. Um, I mean, the PTO racing are, are meant to be supporting, like giving the athletes a chance to race and, and, and stuff, but it just seems crazy though, to do it on the same day as another race in the UK. Yeah. Um, like really, you know, there's not that many athletes over there, but they're getting, gosh, the UK athletes are getting a lot of opportunity to earn money this year. Let's put it that way. Uh, with the races that have been supported by the PTO. Um, but it does seem a bit of an odd decision to put one on the same day as an Ironman UK race. Yeah. And and actually, I think my understanding is Estonia are saying the same thing. Um, so, you know, if, if you're an athlete coming in or athlete's family, I think it's basically, yeah, you're, you're exempt as long as you've, you know, had a test before you've um, yeah, okay. yeah. arrived and things like that. So that's why I think, getting to Estonia and racing is, is not an issue. It's getting, getting back. back. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's the case for most of it, isn't it? It's not the leaving the UK. It's the let, getting back into the UK, whether that yeah. is for a race to start with or returning after, after your race. Well, except for apparent. So Italy at the weekend said that, that Brits can't come without a five day quarantine. Oh, um, okay. Germany and France are pretty much, I think yeah. France is pretty much no go for Brits. Yeah. And, um, Germany similar I think so actually it's um yeah it's all getting very protectionist isn't it and even even the Scots are not welcome are not allowed to go to Manchester now oh are they not why is that is that anything to do with 
Yeah, that's so COVID because of the because of the the Delta variant. The um, Scotland have said no travel to Manchester. So actually, any Scottish athletes would that would that affect? Uh, probably wouldn't affect Bolton actually, but um, it's not a million miles away. It's not a million miles. It is true. Yeah, no. well, isn't Bolton where the isn't Bolton where the variant is instead? It's not Manchester, is it? Or is it moved to Manchester now? Manchester and Salford are the ones I saw mentioned, but I don't know. I don't know. But yes, that's. I mean, so I don't know if there's any. Scottish athletes planning on competing, but <laughs> it is a total nightmare, isn't it? Anyway, how's your training going? Uh, it's fine. Yeah, I'm just uh, yeah, lots of training. So that that's pretty much it at the moment. Trying to kind of just keep my head up and grab a coffee every now and again. <laughs> Do you find when you're when you're in you're obviously right in the thick of it at the moment, are you? And you, do you find yeah. that you're totally wiped out by the evening, and or are you just now used to it and it's just crack on um yeah I mean some days but not always and some days kind of hit you I guess a bit harder than others but no well I mean I don't think about it I don't think about whether I'm wiped out I'm just thinking about the next the next session because if you think about whether if you think about it it plays in your head too much so I don't overthink how I'm feeling I just focus on what I'm doing at that moment and the next session yeah yeah no it makes sense um oh and one thing I did It's it's like sorry it's like why I hate the question like especially leading a race oh how are you feeling how are you going and I'm like uh, you know because it's just one of those such ob- obscure absurd for me anyway I know some people are fine with it but it's just like I the more you start thinking about how you feel to me it just spins more stories in your head of going well am I meant to feel good am I meant to feel bad I'm doing this session is that meant to be a good thing or not and it's just like it is what it is this is today this is the next session in front of me that's what I'm going to do do it to the best I can today and then we'll park that one and move on to the next. Well, it comes back to what Chris Cook was saying about the story you tell yourself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So actually just focusing on the now rather than yeah. worrying about. Yeah. Yeah. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, yeah. One thing I was going to say is I obviously was playing around with the precision hydration stuff, the yes. gels and the um, and the tablets and I thought they worked really well. I, I um, and and also the carb drink. I hadn't had the carb drink until um, uh, until the day before the race, and then again on the race. And yeah, I, I was really impressed with it. So, uh, so you used the carb drink on race day? Yeah, during I, the race, I did mm-hmm. use it, but I did try it the day before on my longer than should be ride. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, because I don't don't normally have carb drinks. I'm not a massive fan of them, but actually, and I think it's a lot of the time it's because they're so overly sweet and yeah. just, whereas actually there's no taste to the ph1 and, and yeah. so that works really well for, in fact That's to be cool. honest i i couldn't tell whether i was uh i couldn't have told whether i was having an electrolyte drink or a carb yeah. drink. so that's well really i good. i am um, i tried out their salt tablets at the weekend so actually this is a, a funny st- well maybe not a funny story it might be a boring story i had a long ride to do and um I had to stop at Banyolas Lake, which is about an hour into the ride to get some swim tickets so that we could open water swim the next day. And when I got there, my credit card didn't work to buy the tickets. So in this, I get like, I have like a cycling wallet, which has 20, pretty much $20 in in every currency kind of going. I've got like pounds, US, New Zealand, Aussie, euros and, and everything. So I used my emergency cash to buy these tickets, which meant I had three euros to get round six hours or so of riding. Um, and um, 
then spent the, and the good thing about Spain is there's actually places where they just have like um open spring springs and stuff so it's kind of then suddenly like racking my brain to work out like where the free water and fluid was that I could save my uh three euros of cash for emergency fund of food if I needed I did have some um I had a couple of bars but I did have a, a pH gel and but I took um I'd taken their salt tablets with me so which actually worked quite well because then I could fill up with water from the taps and then take a salt tablet and yeah I was kind of yeah it felt it was it was good yeah sorry yeah useful thing to be able to try come like race days because um especially like maybe Lanzarote where the special needs you have to kind of divert off the course um and so I probably won't necessarily use it unless it's a real emergency so being able to carry the salt tablets with me in my bento box and then use those as my electrolyte and salt and stuff for the latter half of the race is is quite a good idea yeah I, I used salt tablets in Ironman Italy and yeah the, and I was popping a few as over the course of the race and it um yeah, yeah it does it's just easier than particularly with, than faffing with trying to drop um tablets into yeah. while you're on the move so uh, so yeah no really good um cool well shall we dive into the awesome and really fascinating interview with Sarah and Tara because um yeah I and uh, I've uh, said to you before we obviously already recorded this but the book has just showed up for me from Tara so I'm really looking forward to diving into that um so without further ado uh, let's dive into the interview with Sarah and Tara Sarah Davis and Tara Lau are two ladies that are doing extraordinary things. So they recently cycled across Australia together, raising money for suicide awareness, a subject that Tara herself has written a book on, uh, and which is a very successful book. Uh, it's called Standing on My Brother's Shoulders, Making Peace with Grief and Suicide. So um, uh, whereas Sarah came at it from a very different angle, so she uh, had not that long ago uh, paddled the length of the Niles, so that's 6,853 kilometers, um, as well as also paddling the length of the Murray River in Australia too. So in this absolutely fascinating conversation, Sid and I got the opportunity to chat to them about cycling great distances unsupporting, uh, risk managing these sorts of expeditions, uh, particularly as Sarah is a risk manager by day. Uh, so that was fascinating to understand more about that. Uh, but and also I wanted to kind of dive into the conversation around how we can better deal with and also prevent suicide because it is a conversation that is often brushed under the carpet. Um, so I know you're going to really enjoy this. These two ladies are absolutely fantastic. There was It was a great laugh uh, interviewing them but also there was so much valuable advice within there. So I hope you enjoy. So Tara, Sarah, welcome to the Tribe Athlon podcast. Sid, welcome back. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really excited about chatting to you guys, hearing about some of the crazy things that you've been up to. Um, but let's kick things off. For the people that don't know anything about both of you, um, do you want to let's let's start with you, Sarah? Do you want to tell 
um, people a little, little about, bit about your story, a bit about where you've come from and um, what you do? Um, that's quite, quite a big question to start with. Um, <laughs> I sort of saying, I mean, what I, I sort of go in and describe myself as, which I think sort of will summarise um, a bit about sort of who I am and, and some of the things why I've gone on to do some of the things I do is I, I describe myself as a professional risk manager with a passion for risk taking. Um, and that's certainly something that has driven, I think, a lot of, of where my life has gone from, you know, I've started off professionally as being a risk manager and that's what I've done for longer than I'd care to, to probably share. Um, but then I've always then had this passion for adventure and for going and trying different things and different sports and and so on. And I think, you know, so much of that for me came from my mum. She got me trying loads of sports as a kid. So although I, mean, I was a really shy child and pretty fearful, but I know just going out and trying a lot of different sports just built that sort of bit of confidence and, and kind of fueled a curiosity. And I think for me that, that curiosity has continued to be a, a compass that's kind of driven me to do things like move from the UK to Australia to continue to get involved in different things and try different things and, and then go on adventures, which just sort of got kind of bigger and bigger. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of a, a bit of a summary. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that, that's a kind of very loose summary, I think. I think we need to drill down into that some more, but we, but we obviously will do. Um, and, and Tara, what about you? Um, yeah, well, I have a very mixed background. Um, so I'm actually a professional firefighter. That's my full-time job. Um, but I'm also halfway through a PhD at the moment as well, or over halfway through. Um, and I used to be a physiotherapist. Um, and so it was very much my background was in physical health, but have moved much more recently into mental health in particular and, and suicide prevention, which is the area of my study of my PhD. And so I also started teaching mental health first aid and I wrote a book about my own experiences of grief and trauma and loss um, and suicide. And I had my first kind of expedition when I was 18 after I'd left school. It was my first expedition to Zimbabwe um, with a a charity called Operation Rally um, back in 1989 and that was kind of my introduction into adventure and I have you know I've sort of always still held that and, and loved had a passion for the outdoors and adventure and sport and um, you know haven't really has sort of lost a, a little bit of that and didn't get a chance to really pursue that um, but did row I rode surfboats competitively and that kind of gave me that little bit of passion for for adventure and wildness and being out in nature and and that was um you know, that kept me very happy for, for probably about 12 to 13 years. And I only retired fairly recently from um, active competition. Um, so as my as my niece said to me, she said, Auntie Tara, how many different jobs do you have? Um, she was a bit <laughs> confused. And I thought, yes, I can see why it is very confusing, because even for me, but for me, actually, all the dots kind of come together now. Um, as I've gotten older, I'm able to join all the dots of my experience and my passions and my professional and personal experiences. Now, now I, I've seen a, a video clip before. So you've just come back from an adventure together, both of you cycling the, across Australia, um, West to East, right? I get that the right way around. Um, but I saw in the video clip before you started on that adventure, Tara, you actually called Sarah the more crazy one. And I know Sarah has done some crazy expeditions and adventures, but you row surf light boat 
So that to me, I've seen the pictures of the boats going over the waves backwards. They're vertical. There's people getting flung out. That to me scares the shit out of me. What? Explain a little bit what that is like. Uh, you know what? For me, it's just the essence of passion and flow and it's just everything that I love. Um, so it, it is for for people um, that that don't know what a surf boat is. It's it comes through from or its background is in surf lifesaving, and we used to use the boats to actually rescue people before we had motorized um, inflatable boats. And now it's become a sport. So there's four people and, and what we call a sweep, who is almost like the cocks. And you go out through the surf around a boy and come back again. Um, but it does get quite hectic when the surf is big. You can sort of, um, <laughs> the boats weigh about 200 kilos. Um, and obviously you're trying to navigate and pull an oar through very unpredictable, messy water. Um, but it's really the essence of teamwork, I think, as well, because you have to trust each other. Um, and to be honest, there's a lot of similarities with rowing surfboats as there is with firefighting in terms of that teamwork and, and a chaotic, unpredictable environment um, and quite a risky and potentially dangerous environment. And really, it's about how you work together, which I think is is just for me is part of what I absolutely love about it and, and what gives me so much and has taught me so much in terms of life skills as well, um, as well as giving me, you know, that that bit of thrill and adrenaline and just following my passion really well talking about together I'm glad to see well I don't know we're sat on four separate zoom calls you maybe you're not friends anymore but I think you're still friends after the adventure talking about together yes. <laughs> you seem to be we did have separate tents in order to maintain our friendship <laughs> <laughs> um a quick question to start off to, to Sarah about your last event, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what you've done. How are Des and Troy? <laughs> Des and Troy. <laughs> they, they've recovered well. <laughs> so I probably need to give a bit of background to that one. I think Please do. Yeah. Yeah. Dark, you? <laughs> <laughs> we have tired for this one. So we were going across the Nullarbor. Um, so we're talking about being either close to 2,000 k's into the expedition. My legs still hadn't adapted. It just felt like we were just pushing harder and harder every day and the legs were suffering. And I, it was just we were having a bad day, more bike issues, and I was just... Uh, just really, I do. It's sort of just a, a bit emotional and struggling with it all. And Tara's very good at them being able to to lift um, lift people and certainly me up during this trip when I hit the lows. And I was doing a vlog at the time, sort of just doing a despair of how I was struggling. And Tara comes in and goes, "Right, I'm going to introduce you to Des," and pointed to one leg. And then she said, "And this is Troy," and pointed to the other leg. And she said, "And together they destroy." (laughs) (laughs) I I found it funny as well. (laughs) This made me laugh when I needed it, um, really needed it the most. So yes, Des and Troy are doing okay, but are quite happy to not be so every day <laughs> so what what made you guys decide that you wanted to cycle across australia well, again this sort of comes back to me so i was doing i did my i did big expedition down the nile and that was 2018 into 2019 and that was the sort of the first um real sort of expedition i'd done something you know from a self-organized perspective i'd gone on adventure you know adventure holidays but nothing like this and you know it was and let's just say the first 
female to lead, to lead that, an expedition, lead an expedition yeah, down the Nile. Down the Nile I think we need to come back to find out more about it. We will. So we'll come back to well, no, oh, maybe just tell us about it now, actually. What, describe what it's like paddling down the Nile. Um, yeah, that was pretty hectic. Uh, it was uh, certainly, you know, as someone who's a risk manager going in, there are a fair few risks to unpack with that. It was, the goal of it was to, um, to do the length of the, the Nile, starting in Rwanda um, at, I would say, was it the source? It's still debated, but the source that I chose, um, and to then make my way through to Egypt, a mix of rafting and kayaking. Um, so the first, I did 1,100 k's in total of, of rafting. So it wasn't all white water, but there was a fair bit of, there was some white water through that initial section through Rwanda, Tanzania and Uganda. Um, the choice of craft was also to be a tiny bit further away from some of the more aggressive wildlife that one encounters when going down the Nile um, in the form of hippos and crocodiles. And um, and it was jolly good that we did sit in the raft because we did get attacked by a hippo who bit the back of the raft so um, I was quite glad to have the space between me and this rather um, large set of jaws that was, <laughs> was coming for us um, and yeah so then made that through through Sudan ended up having to miss the Sudan for security reasons but then got in the kayak for Sudan and Egypt and that was about 3,000 k's of kayaking. Um, so, yeah, it was a total of about six months on the water um, or in Africa, rather, not all of that was on the water because it was all self-organised. So, yes, there have been two years of preparation and planning and even doing, you know, recce trips to Sudan and Egypt to start to build some networks on the ground and get support um, from from locals, from local government. Um, and, yeah, and then six months on the go but there was times to sort of stop it and plan and and execute the next before executing the next section uh and and it was during that that you know it I wasn't sure you know how much I was going to enjoy this I didn't expect to enjoy the start of it because there were so many dangers and the things that scared me the most like the the crocs and the hippos and also the big water and all of those things but for me it just it really made me come alive and and you know and I when rereading my um my note, my diary, it was within the first four weeks that I started to think about what was next, even though I still had thousands of kilometres to go. And that was when I came up with this idea of, of doing to cycle across Australia. You know, it was like, it was like I wanted to do something back home. I'd always had a bucket list thing of sort of like wanting to cross a continent and the idea of doing it self-powered and, and a way of seeing more of Australia and you know, what I realised is doing the Nile trip, what was so good is the pace that you kind of go at. You know, you, you still manage to cover a reasonable distance, but you're going at a pace where you are part of that environment and you are talking to more people and and seeing seeing it, smelling it, hearing it, you know, as as you go. And and it was just that idea that, that I came up with there. It went away, but then once we were sort of in through COVID, Obviously, we weren't going to be travelling overseas and the idea sort of bubbled back up again that it's sort of been sitting there for some time. Brilliant. And Tara, how were you dragged in on this mission? That's a very, very good question. There were many points along the expedition when I looked at Sarah and said, it's all your fault that I'm here. <laughs> um, um, as I was just very quietly looking forward to our first time we could go out for breakfast after COVID uh, when we were coming out of lockdown and it was like, oh, we're going to have, so I was having enjoying a lovely plate of chilli scrambled eggs. And Sarah said, oh, I, I'm going to want to cycle across 
Australia. And I said, oh, I'd love to come with you. And she was like, well, why don't you? And um, and I was like, oh, no, I can't. I can't. I've got too much on. And then I was like, oh. And by the end of the conversation, somehow, it was like, yes, I can. And somehow, by the end of the conversation, I was going with her. Amazing. And so how much cycling experience would you – I have a feeling that – I remember listening to a podcast last night. You weren't a big fan of cycling, Sarah, were you? No, no. I did my – my cycling experience is – I decided to work in London. I started doing a bit of triathlon. I gave up triathlon because I hated cycling. <laughs> and then I had a boyfriend. My ex-boyfriend used to, used to really enjoy mountain biking and I used to go mountain biking with him and, and it would scare the bejesus out of me. Um, so as a result of all of those things, I hadn't actually really sat on a bicycle for 15 years um, before deciding to do this. Which is probably a good thing because I think if I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. Sounds <laughs> like the perfect preparation. And what about you, Tara? Were you an avid cyclist at this point? No, I, I certainly wasn't an avid cyclist. But I mean, the only time I cycle really is when I want to go on holiday. So I have done because um, I find it a nice pace. It's a beautiful pace and a way to see a country. Um, so, so the only cycle trips I've really done have been. Um, fully supported and and what I would call a holiday I mean they I cycled uh, I did a couple of weeks trip around Myanmar and I cycled from uh, Peru to Bolivia um, which which took a few weeks but that was fully supported um, and then in between I don't cycle at all so I hadn't been on a bike for um, I have done some adventure racing in, in the past as well but but really recently I, I haven't really done any cycling <laughs> so so I know, Sarah, when you did the Nile, obviously you've got a, a strong history with your paddling. And actually, yes, I, know, I remember listening to things of saying when you were preparing for the Nile, you actually didn't do as much training in paddling um, because you knew you'd sort of build the fitness on the way and actually didn't want to get to the start line sort of injured and stuff. How much then for you guys did you do cycling or was it just let's get to the start line and hope that we'll build <laughs> build and Des and Troy will adapt <laughs> along the way kind of thing no I probably did do definitely did do some cycling because I didn't have that base the good thing about having been a, a kayaker for such a long time like run long distance sort of running half marathons was my thing and then I blew my meniscus and and I've got osteoarthritis and that's what got me into the kayaking and so then I spent 10 years as a kayaker so very upper body conditioned not lower body conditions so I knew you know I needed to get on the bike and and also to build up some strength so you know I was working with my physio BFit physio who was helping me build the program to actually build the strength in, in my legs you know one of the things I think and a lot of people um you know when I've researched agree you know so much with building that strength that you've got the muscle to then hopefully prevent the injuries and the overuse but well I did do some cycling you know, because it's I'm not that keen on it, I didn't really do a huge amount. So I definitely didn't go into the expedition overtrained. <laughs> and was working on the theory of adaptation to get me through it and mindset. <laughs> I find it I'm find it amazing how people do this. I remember reading Sean Conway's book where he swam from Land's End to John O'Groats, and he had hardly done any swimming in the lead up to that. And it was yeah, so. Does the body adapt quite quickly or does it kind of, does it want to give up after about four days and then eventually you, you battle through? Well, for me, I mean, and, and on the on the, the kayaking ones I've done, so I also did the Murray River here in Australia, um, 
it adapted, you know, about 10 days to two weeks, adapted to doing those long days. Uh, on this trip, it took about four weeks. It was just, you. it sort of went to running on empty to then most days feeling like I was getting on the bike after leg day. Um, so yeah, I did, it did take longer than, than I'd hoped to adapt. Um, but I think we we both had different, you know, it was affected us differently. I think Tara, from your perspective, it was probably different. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was lucky because I had, you know, probably 15 years worth of rowing in me. And so rowing the, the, from crossing over from rowing to bike is a much smoother crossover and and very similar muscles so I had a lot of leg power and already so from in that sense that was easier for me I think um but I'm not really an endurance athlete I'm very much a power athlete naturally so for me it was very much about adapting to just physically being in that position for that length of time and that really there's no substitute than doing it you know so we did I did train but we didn't do you know it's also difficult because of the amount of time you need to spend on a bike to prepare your body for that and I just didn't have that much time so you know I might go for two hour rides and and you know we did a couple of we did do one overnighter in in um preparation but we really didn't do any super long rides so the only way to adapt to, to that side of things in terms of being in that position and be on the bike for that many hours a day is just to do it um and, and you know, I think I probably, from a leg perspective, I, I found it okay. Um, you know, that wasn't the hard bit for me. It was more just the discomfort of everything else. And, you know, your neck and your hand, both of our hands went numb from the pressure on the nerves. Um, and we kind of lost. We had, to, had quite interesting matching set. Well, like between us, we had one functional set of hands. But, um, <laughs> um, yeah, um, so... <laughs> That was quite interesting. It was different things, I think. As Sarah said, it was different for me. Probably the, the issues that I found challenging physically was probably slightly different to Sarah's. Because it's also different. I mean, so, all right, going out and training and doing some cycling on a bike. But then once the bike's fully loaded and kitted up, I mean, I saw some pictures. You took, I mean, how much were the bikes weighing in total? Or did you not think? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't. I think we sort of, we looked at, to begin with, it was more focusing on what we could fit in there and kind of thinking that that would be the the limiting factor which it, it sort of was but um and we did weigh them the bags sort of before we went didn't we but it was really only when we got to the people that we stayed with in Kalgoorlie and the the guy who we stayed with is a couple care um, Rob and Kerry and Rob's a former um elite cyclist and he was really interested to see how much the bikes weighed so he took our panniers and took the bikes and weighed it all and worked out that with a full load of food and with full water, so the water we were carrying, the maximum would be 17 and a half litres, which is 17 and a half kilos, um, came in at sort of between 65 to 69 kilos bike and gear. It was about right, wasn't it, Tara, 65 to 69 kilos? Yeah, yeah, they they were, that was what they, because we had at that point, um, because it was going to be 1,200 kilometres to the next supermarket, so we had a lot of food on board as well so um we had yeah yeah we were we, we wanted to make absolutely sure that we didn't run out of food and we didn't but we did mean we had very very heavy bikes and I'm sure that obviously contributed to a lot of the bike issues that we ended up having 
What, what, so what were you eating? And is there anything as a result of the exhibition that you cannot look at again or want to taste ever again? Tuna. <laughs> I never want to see another <laughs> packet of tuna in my life and maybe a protein bar as well. I don't want to see a protein bar. <laughs> um, we did have, we had sent um, some dehydrated food to Kalgoorlie to pick up and we took some with us from Perth as well. Um, so we had some of that for the nights when we were in between roadhouses and where there was no access to anything. And we had packet tuna, hence I, for lunches. So hence that neither of us probably, or I certainly don't want to see any packet tuna for quite some time. Um, and we had a lot of sort of protein bars and muesli bars and um, those sorts of things. And we had oats generally for breakfast. Um, and then whatever, any time that we could, were able to pick up fresh food, we did, although we really didn't have hardly any fresh food for certainly for the first six weeks I would say I think what what do you think Sarah I don't think from what yeah I there wasn't a huge amount unless I mean chicken parma and stuff like that I don't know if that really counts in chips it was like I'm just I'm because I never thought I'd be over hot chips but I was like okay, quite a lot of hot chips and then I I needed quite a lot I needed sugar um I more than well, I think I needed it but I certainly consumed quite a lot of sugar so the lollies, or I think you call them um, sort of sweet, so snakes, um, the all-natural confectionery, and I just went through so many packets of that, even towards the end. I was like, I just can't eat that anymore, and I never thought I would be over that, but also, yeah, the tuna, don't want to do packet tuna again. I used all of that down in Murray too, and I'm just like, I'm so done with that packet tuna. <laughs> it was brilliant, and I just don't know if anyone has any ideas for alternatives for expeditions of things like that you can have on the go for lunches, which was like, oh, like crazy expensive. It just, it works really well. But yeah, even with four flavours, I'm done, done. You might both potentially come down with mercury poisoning as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, that is a thing as well. I've had a friend, um, a, a triathlete friend who's had that for eating too. I just tune Now, what the podcast I was listening to last night, uh, was pre you cycling across um, Australia, and one of the things he said was you'd you'd got a, a a saddle that people had recommended, but you then said, "But I'm also thinking about using the joke the gel padded saddle cover," and I cringed at hearing that. So, how did that go? Was the saddle right? Was the gel cover right? Did either of them work? Well, we had we had different approaches. So I ended up I just got this gel cover from Decathlon, and that worked for me. It fitted the the seat perfectly. It was obviously cheaper as chips, um, and for me, that just that tiny bit of extra padding worked. But Tara, I mean, you you were happy without. You didn't. In fact, that made it worse for you, didn't it? Yeah, I did. I, I after you got it, I thought I'll try one. So I went and I did one ride and went nah. <laughs> and took that away and went back to just the seat but the seat itself was was absolutely brilliant and that was um something that Sarah had done a lot of research which I mean thankfully um I'm so grateful to have had Sarah because she did all of the research and then I just went is that one good okay I'll get that then <laughs> um and so what, uh, so, so what so what saddle was that for people that are thinking about embarking on a on a trip was it it was the specialized power Mimic? Oh, mimic. Yeah. yeah. Mimic. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it wasn't, I, I was envisaging one of these kind of leather, these old school leather looking saddles. <laughs> the that actually is a, <laughs> <laughs> they, they 
they were they were on decent bikes. I have to say, it wasn't like no, no, no. <laughs> no the leather saddles are really expensive. But a lot of the endure, a lot of the um, uh, expedition cyclists use them. So that's kind of what I had in mind. Not a really old, like nineteen sixties. Although they do look like it, they are new and. Anyway, so no, that's that's really good. Thank you. Tara, you mentioned just then about like Sarah did all, Sarah was good at doing the research and you just went, right, what have, what have you done? Let me know. <laughs> Coming together as a pair then for the, and also Sarah, you mentioned earlier about how Tara is really good at making you laugh and that's the thing. So what sort of skills did you each bring to the, to the cycle and how did you complement each other with that? I mean, I think we, I think we, that was where we, we had a really fantastic sort of complementary skill set. Um, and I think that really shone through and allowed us to get through and, and to still be friends at the end and to work with each other. And I think that was something that was just one of the best things, or certainly for me. And um, I mean, I would never have even got to the start um, had it not been for Sarah, because she, you know, she is so good and amazing at, and obviously having planned the Nile expedition, she, and being a risk manager, so she had spreadsheeted the entire thing and um, had done a whole risk management plan. And she actually designed and set up the website herself. And she understands social media. I have absolutely no idea about any of that. Um, so I did it at the beginning think I'm not quite sure what I bring to the party. Um, but I, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, obviously I was a, well, I have a physio background, although I don't know whether I particularly helped. So I, I did uh, treat you once, I think on the trip, but anyway, um, but I think also I, I, I guess I had a lot of contacts, um, through a lot of the work that I've done. So in terms of getting sponsorship, um, that was kind of what I was able to to get some sponsors on on board um but beyond that i'm not quite sure what what else did i bring so <laughs> you're being really harsh on yourself well tara very much we had i mean once we got on the ride you know we had some regular balls one tara was up front so tara was doing the work up front and i'd sit on the back um head of comms like you know when we went into it <laughs> she was head of comms i was i um it support i know it help desk um and and so when it came to uh things like that, everything from the newsletter to talking to people as we went to having and I'm sure we'll get into it you know so some very challenging conversations um you know Tara is just so good at getting our messaging across and her messaging across and having impactful conversations that it you know it was so much more than just we're riding across the country um obviously you know we were raising money for for mental health and and suicide prevention um and so there was so much on that side and and there was a lot of logistical then just organizing stuff because Tara had Telstra I was on Vodafone so I didn't have any coverage until I got to pretty much Byron Bay um and and so there was a lot of you know fielding calls and everything and that stuff it just when you're, you're tired at the end of the day it, you just don't want to be doing that and then the network that you know Tara brought to it so you know it was through her friends as we're on the Nullarbor trying to work out what the hell we do with our bikes because we've got more flat tires and do we go back to Kalgoorlie do we change tire setups you know and just organizing like getting all that information um and just so much info from to bring in you know a network a huge network that Tara's got from everything from people with the bike experience through to the forest, <laughs> through to the deputy police commissioner. It was just extraordinary. 
um, as well as keeping me going, motivating me, making me laugh, and occasionally giving Des and Troy a bit of a bit of love as well. <laughs> because, well, <laughs> two things. How long have you got it down to for changing a tire? Come on, ladies. Twenty-one. Yes. Forty-one minutes. <laughs> How long did it take you the first time? Was it? <laughs> Three hours or something. Shame to admit. You know, that did involve about three phone calls from the middle of the Nullarbor as well, I think. You did have, I seem to remember, a lot of tyre issues, but um, let's not go into that bit. But you you touched on it there about um, some of the challenges and the difficult situations you had to go through. And I know... There was one um, involving a gentleman that you met called Leith. Is that Leith? Is that right? His name, if I if yeah. I give him the right um, respect there. And tell us a little bit about what happened there and how that then subsequently went to affect whether you carried on or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that was without a doubt the most challenging time in the whole trip, really. And and I think that was the really the big thing of you know. And we had set this mission was that you know how how do, can we empower people to struggle well with life's challenges and you know not knowing what would happen um, and thinking that we would encounter all sorts of other challenges, but but not this. Um, and we met. We were in the middle of nowhere. We hadn't really seen any cyclists at all. Uh, um, it was quite incredible. And then we saw this little figure coming towards us, and it was like, oh wow, it's another cyclist. Um, and so this young man sort of crossed over to the other side of the road and, and we had a lovely chat and he was giving us tips because he had a very, he was like, oh, I like your setup. And, um, you know, he had a very uh, light setup. You know, it was like, wow, how do you do it? And he was only carrying a few litres of water and he was giving us tips of, of things like having a sign to hold out for water and saying the grey nomads are great. They, they often stop to help um, and they'll give you water and, and all sorts of things and just saying it was a bit harder for him to get off the road because he had slicks on and he had a road, um, a road bike. And we just, you know, just as we were about to leave, I, I sort of called out, what's your name? And Sarah said, oh, what's your Instagram? And it, he carried on going and we went to the next roadhouse um, and we had actually arranged to meet um, some other cyclists that we knew and had been in contact with and we were sitting just um, having a bite to eat and the, the manager of the roadhouse came up and said, uh, have you got any friends out there? Um, there's just been a cyclist killed 40 kilometres um, outside of or from where we were um, by a road train. And both Sarah and I, I mean, it was just like I just remember feeling sick and because we knew instantly who it was, um, it couldn't have been anybody else. Um, and that really just we were the last people to speak to him. Um, we were able to, we had stopped in at the police um, before the police station at Norseman on the way as we were about to start on the Nullarbor, so they knew we were out there and just to uh, pass on some resources uh, through some of the work that I do. Um, and so we were able to help ID him. Um, and we'd done some publicity stuff in Kalgoorlie, so we, a lot of the the newspaper and radio channels sort of rang to say are you okay they'd obviously heard what had happened and they were able to put us in contact with the family um, and to speak with the family and try and lessen some of the impact of their grief and trauma um, but also obviously it made us really think about what we were doing and why and you know if part of what we were doing was to set try and save people's lives how much do we risk our own and really to to wrestle and struggle with some of those really difficult questions and 
you know, not to react and respond. I think, you know, certainly my temptation always is to just keep pushing through and, and you know, and going, you know, actually, no, we need to stop. We need to stop and we need to just really ground ourselves and think about what we're doing. Um, and we had to keep going. We had another 64 kilometres to do that day. It was boiling hot. It was like over 40 degrees. We had another flat tyre and I think both of us were like, come on, just give us a break. Like, we just need to get to this next roadhouse so we can stop and just let ourselves rest and think and we kind of I mean what was amazing was that both Sarah and I were really on the same page for the entire time really we didn't have any kind of real disagreements at all and we both agreed that we needed to slow down and have a rest day and and let things settle and we did um, and the couple that we met bought us new tyres and we pushed on for another few days um to reach the south australian border um and then it was there that we had to give a police statement and we met the police officer there and he said every time i see a cyclist i shudder there was another cyclist killed a couple of weeks ago um you know if you want to have an adventure go somewhere else um it's so dangerous we spoke to some of the truckies who said you know we just can't maneuver around you it's really difficult for us um and i it was like everything was saying to us you know don't don't do it, don't keep carry on. And we had a GPS tracker on us. So, you know, it, it made us really think about, I guess, you know, you want, you have this goal that you want to get to, you know, from A to B, and this is your, this is your goal um, that you've been focused on for so long and being able to kind of let go of that to a certain extent and make good decisions. And we, so we stopped and we both went individually and spoke to people, um, friends, um, to try and mull over our options and spoke about whether we should just stop where we were um, altogether, whether we complete the whole of the rest of the 5,000 kilometres around Centennial Park um, or whether we change routes. And, and we ended up, that was the decision that we decided in the end, that we would change routes. And the way that things played out after that, um, I think we both absolutely know that that was the right decision and, and sort of also promoting the messaging that we were trying to promote around struggling with difficult and challenging life experiences and that goals, it's great to have goals, but we should be able to hold them gently and we should be able to adapt and change and make good decisions and allow ourselves to be grounded and not react from emotion um, and to wrestle with the options and give ourselves options and then to be able to come to a decision that's a, a thought out and a grounded decision. And I think we really did that. Um, and that certainly played out in that we went down the Air Peninsula instead and we skipped about 350 kilometres of the Nullarbor and we took this tiny little road off. Nobody knew where we were going and no one had our route, but we thought we were going to go through the Air Peninsula because Leaf had said, you must go there, it's beautiful, and it just felt right. So we did that and we were on this tiny little road and this car pulled up and, and a man got out and he said, are you the cyclist? And, and we sort of said, uh, yes. He said, you met my nephew, Leaf who was killed and it was this he was on his way to the crash site to be where Leaf had been killed and there was no reason that he should have come across us and it was just it was like the universe saying there was some synchronicity in that and we spoke to him and we had a little laugh about you know that Leaf would have said oh you know what a great setup and he would have admired it and it was like yeah exactly he did do that and um and we had it shared a tear and and that moment and that moment of connection and sort of just really reinforced and validated that we had made the right decision in doing what we did and that we could connect 
with him, with Leif's uncle and with the family and, and hopefully be able to answer some questions for them and just reduce some of their grief, even in the tiniest little bit, if we could do that just a tiny bit. And I, I hope that we did through that meeting and it just reinforced the choices that we made and the decisions that we made. Um, and also, I guess, our, our reason for cycling in the first place. So let's let's come on to the... I, I want to come on to the reason... Um, uh, you know, that's an incredible story and, and brilliant that you were able to adapt the goals and, uh, but also to sort of get back to the purpose. So I want to come on to the purpose of doing this and raising money for, um, uh, for suicide prevention. But before I do, I can't help but ask Sarah, when you're going through that process as a risk manager, you know, what, how, how do you, how do you bring your work into making the decisions as to whether you should carry on or whether you should stop? And, and I dare say you brought that in long before you even started. So how does your risk management work play into this, these sorts of events? Yeah, and it, and it really does. Like for me, you know, I start putting it into the way we sort of talk about it through work and, and the things that we do instinctively, but, you know, I wrap the, the, the wording that you get in, in risk management and sort of suddenly the, the risk appetite, the risk appetite to continue didn't match the goal. Like the risk appetite that it was going to need to meet our objective, it wasn't there because it just felt we, I was getting outside of the risk that I was comfortable taking and with all this messaging coming into us with every bit of messaging was don't continue. Um, and there was nothing there that was saying to continue. And, you know, you start, we look at all the things that we've done as we've gone along of like, how can we reduce the risk? So there was very much, you know, and, and looking at the options and, and what we can do. And we'd already done everything we could. We were getting off the roads whenever a road train approached so the way we were set up was, you know, was again very much trying to minimise the risk. I had we both had mirrors on our bikes on the handlebars. Um, I was, as I said, sitting behind T. Tara be calling out what was coming up ahead. I'd be calling out what I could see in the mirror, and and then making calls as to whether we needed to get off the road or not. Um, we had lights. We were just doing everything we could, and it was still feeling like it's not enough to keep us safe and and that we, you know, well, I felt, you know, it was risking our lives too much and it was just, it, yeah, it wasn't worth continuing feeling like that. And there was just, there was no joy um, on the bikes through that, on that road, on the Nullarbor, particularly after everything had happened. And obviously, you know, you come into it knowing the risks are there. It's very different when you're confronted with them with the reality of it um, and your positivity bias and all those things just gets knocked out of you um, and your perspective changes. So yeah, it was, it was, we had to, we had to adapt the goal. Like the, there was nothing else we could do to bring it down to a point that we were comfortable with. Um, and we, you know, we were moving away. Well, you know, one of the big things, uh, you know, so I was saying is, is that messaging around, struggling well and, and having conversations and what we realized like you know particularly across this area there were no conversations really to have you know you're not going through any of the local communities that we had been previously through WA and 
and hearing about, you know, the impact of, of um, suicide and the challenges with mental health through these rural and um, remote communities. And, and we weren't doing any of that. So you suddenly start looking at what, we, as I said, you know, you come back to the why and there just weren't good enough reasons to, to continue. Yeah, that makes, it, makes a lot of sense. Just to, no, I just just for those people that might be listening and aren't familiar, explain what a road train is, just to give it context, like on what size we are talking about when you're on that road. So, I mean, this is the ones that we're dealing with on that road. You've got your your truck, and it's pulling um, up to three semi trailers. So those ones were up to forty two meters long. So it's like having you know a truck almost the length of an Olympic swimming pool coming past you. So. You know, one, that means they're not um, manoeuvrable. You know, if it suddenly pulls out, the back end of that is going to whip out. They can't manoeuvre quickly. Obviously, with the amount of weight, they're going at 100 kilometres an hour. I can't, can't translate that. I can't remember what the miles per hour would be Kilometres is fine. Two miles an hour. They can't suddenly stop. Um, the visibility, obviously, is, is, you know, they can't see. And then you've got the suck of those going past, which it sort of depends partly on the wind conditions and the shape of the truck. But, you know, people have, have been killed or, you know, been seriously injured. As that goes past, if, if there isn't a big enough gap, the, the suck will, uh, will potentially pull you into or under that, that truck. So, yeah. Is there a, I remember when I interviewed Mark Beaumont, who cycled across Australia twice, once unsupported uh, and then once uh, supported as part of his um, Around the World in 80 Days. Is there, you know, for those people that, that think, oh, I love the idea of cycling across Australia, as I certainly did when I was listening to, to him talk about it, except for the wind, he seemed to have a headwind the whole way across. Um, is there a particular route that you would suggest people take knowing what you know now, or is it really you kind of stuck on certain stretches where the only option is these types of roads with the road trains? Yeah, I mean, you haven't got a lot of options. Um, you know, if you go, there are potentially quieter roads, but then you get to the point that you've got far, far bigger gaps between um, areas that you can refill for water or food. So suddenly, logistically, it becomes a lot harder, particularly if you're doing it unsupported. Um, you know, it's it has been done, but then you also, you know, more remote, it, it brings in different risks. You know, yes, you move away from the busy roads, but then if you have bike issues, um, physical issues, you know, it's that much harder. Um, so it's, yeah, there isn't really a huge amount of choice. Yeah, okay. I think, funnily enough, I, I asked Mark, I remember asking Mark, what was his... He had the best place he'd cycled, and it. And as much as I think he had a love-hate relationship with cycling across Australia, but cycling Africa, which was his, the length of Africa was his favourite. Um, any given that you've got the experience of of uh, of paddling through a lot of Africa, is there any temptation to go back and and to cycle Africa? No. <laughs> I guess that might be the answer. I'm sticking with paddling. Mine is pretty much off the cliff already. It's gone. <laughs> I was going to say, have I was going to ask, have you actually been on the bike since you got back at all, or is it just like? Well, we did because we we part of what we decided in in rerouting because we missed a few uh, about three or four hundred kilometers along the Nullarbor. We decided we would make that distance up in Centennial Park. So we did that when we got. So we did 
we did complete those 100 kilometers in Centennial Park when we got back going round and round. It's only a four kilometer or less than a 3.8 kilometer loop. So that was quite a few laps. Um, but other than that, I have not been on the bike at all. There's no passion to cycle. I actually have. Surprisingly, I have been on the bike a few times. <laughs> but it's really only because I couldn't get out for a paddle and I needed to do something. So, yeah, I, I think. I can't see myself rushing to do a cycling trip. Yeah, as I say, we can safely say that then the next adventure for either both of you together or both, or separately is probably not going to be on a bike. Definitely not. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so I, I really want to come on to you, Tara, and talk about the reason why you were doing this and the raising, you know, awareness for suicide prevention. Um, the it's a charity, you know, it's an area that's very close to my heart. My wife lost her brother to uh, taking his own life. Um, and it's actually, so our, our chosen charity for my business this year is a suicide prevention charity. So it's something that I'm, re- but why, why do you support that particular charity um, so much? And why are you do building your, you know, doing your PhD on it as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it really stems back to having my own experiences. So um, I lost my brother to suicide when I was 17, so back in 1988. Um, and that absolutely changed my world. It changed the whole trajectory of my life, and it does impact. You know, it's impacted me in every possible way. It kind of changes your whole it fractures your whole relationship with yourself, I think. Um, my whole world was obliterated. I had lost my mother four years before um, she had died um, from cancer. Um, and my father struggled very much with quite significant mental health issues throughout his life for which he was hospitalised at, at various times. Um, so mental illness and, and obviously suicide has really impacted my life in in every way possible. Um, and I sort of turned away from that for, for many, many years, probably 15 years. I, I just couldn't, you know, it was, I wasn't able to, I, I moved to Australia. I just tried to block anything to do with that out. And then I um, attended uh, the scene of a suicide as a firefighter. Um, and it brought, it sort of, I had a, a sort of traumatic critical incident sort of stress reaction to that. Um, and I had a visceral sort of, feeling that I was going to vomit um, and I had a friend who attempted suicide and that really led me to and I had a relationship breakdown all those things kind of led me to start to turn towards what was happening inside me that I tried to kind of run away from um, and I then went through a very long struggle to make sense of what had happened and to try to heal myself I guess um, and that then led me to part of that was writing my own life story down um, and I then led me to writing a book about my experiences um, and that then also got me into I work in the peer support team um, with firefighters supporting uh, firefighters who've been impacted by some of the traumatic incidents we attend Um, I became a mental health first aid instructor and then I kind of it and then I started doing my PhD because I I spoke to so many people who had been hugely impacted by suicide as well and realized the damage through silencing and never being able to speak about it and how damaging that is and the secondary damage that that cause causes to people um and I guess that led me into my PhD and looking at the impact of suicide on firefighters and it became something that really was I guess my meaning and purpose in life um and very much so and 
the ride really enabled me to integrate all of my passions because I love adventure. I love being outside, but to be able to, you know, the why for doing it for me in terms of raising money, but also creating really safe and valuable conversations for people um, about suicide, um, which is really confronting. And how do we kind of change that public narrative? Because that's my passion. And as Sarah said, you know, to be able to just have those face-to-face meaningful conversations where people are able to share their stories was part of what really drove me, um, as well as obviously raising money for, for Lifeline, which is our, uh, the suicide pre- sort of predominant suicide prevention charity in, um, in Australia. And that why for doing it and my passion for that, I guess, and wanting to make a difference in the world in that space was really what drove me throughout the whole ride and to actually complete it um, as well and to start it in the first place. The, the, the stats around uh, suicide are frightening. I think, I think I'm right in saying that it's the, the single largest killer of men aged between 20 and 40 in the UK. And I think I heard you say on a podcast that it was, um, you know, it's, it, it kills way more people than, than road deaths um, in Australia. Um, have you got any, you know, are there any, is there any advice? Because the ripple effect is is something that you talk about, isn't it? Maybe you can explain the ripple effect, but also have you got any advice for people that are, you know, you know to help people get over the, the death of, you know, the suicide of, of somebody they cared about? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I think it's really important. So we know from research that about 135 people are directly impacted by every single suicide death and that's really the ripple effect and I guess you know there's a ripple effect throughout somebody's life you know as it is for me and you know one of my um, PhD participants I spoke to who had lost his father said it affects every single day of your life and he had lost his father over 30 years ago Um, and that's not uncommon I hear that all the time and also speaking to first responders so firefighters who don't even know the person and have had a significant traumatic reaction to that so that ripple effect plays out in so many ways. And we know that people who have been impacted by suicide are much more likely to experience suicidal behaviour, but also their own mental illness, whether that's depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress. And also social isolation because people don't know what to say. So they tend to leave you alone. And I've had people kind of cross over the road to avoid actually speaking to me because, you know, that. and and many people have have shared their experiences of the same thing because it's like, well, I don't know what to say, so I'll just avoid you. Um, And so people become even more isolated as well, and and that can be so damaging. Um, And we know that social connection is so important in terms of people's well-being. Um, so I think in terms of helping people, so there's so much and in Australia, um, and, and I'm less aware of resources in, in the UK, but there are so many. Um, so there's Suicide Bereavement UK. It's a huge, um, has some fantastic resources um, here, standby support after suicide. And I think it is about finding people and access to support that have a lot of knowledge and experience in that specific area because a lot of mental health professionals aren't necessarily experienced in suicide and looking at it as a traumatic death because it is a traumatic death and therefore it plays out differently um, to ju- it's not just a grief response that you're dealing with and I think you know, there's lots of evidence for expressive writing um, in the healing of trauma so I've certainly found that writing my life story and writing down as if no one was ever going to read it um, it did turn into a book but 
but I wrote it as if it was never going to be read by anybody. And that is incredibly healing because you can re-script that narrative. And it gave me self-compassion and self-understanding that I couldn't possibly have had had I not done that. And I did that at the same time as seeking professional help and support. So I really encourage people to seek professional help and support to help them through what is an incredibly long and difficult journey of, of grief and trauma um, after you have been impacted by suicide. So for me, those things were really um, fundamental and transformational in allowing me to actually turn my life around and be the person that I wanted to be rather than being kind of locked in this complex grief um, and which kind of had aspects of anxiety in there as well and all sorts of things. So definitely turning to the support services that are out there and, and there's more and more good support services coming um, that are available for people now. I think that sounds like uh, incredibly good advice from the, the, the stuff I've witnessed that my wife has been through. Um, one more question on this, if you don't mind, I don't really want to um, take up too much of your time on this one, but I had I was listening to a podcast where you were talking about suicide and um, you were talking about or the question was, what advice would you give to somebody that finds somebody else that's contemplating suicide? Because it, it really it brought back. A, I remember going and speaking to somebody that was sat on a, a cliff edge and I was I asked the question, are you OK? And he said, yes. And having listened to your conversation, I know now that that wasn't the right question to ask. So what, what, what advice would you give around um, if somebody else, you know, is aware of or finds somebody that is um, maybe contemplating suicide? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult and there's no, you know, categorical right or wrong. I mean, I think certainly just equipping yourself with as much knowledge as you can so there's fantastic courses available now to to learn more um, from just short online ones so um, there's a great organization called living works that provide um, courses for people to uh, of all different length courses to to start a conversation with someone who they might be concerned about so certainly that is absolutely the best place to start but if you just come across somebody it is just about making that connection and showing that you care and saying, you know, I care. I'm here. How are you traveling? Because you seem, it, it looks like you're struggling. You know, can it, how are you? And opening up a safe space for somebody to tell you their story, really, and to reconnect them. So what you want to do is to make someone feel cared for because people often feel alone. Um, and they can tell straight away if you're genuine in saying that you care. And trying to connect them to their meaning in life. And that's different for people, but trying to find a way to reconnect them with, with something that has meaning for them, you know, and whether that's a pet or a person or even a plant or something that they care about that has meaning for them, that's ultimately what you really want to be able to do to keep someone safe. And there are fantastic resources, um, you know, downloadable resources um, uh, around suicide safety planning so that you can take people through to build their own safety plan. So if you have recurrent suicidal thoughts, you can actually build a plan and build a plan with somebody that you might be concerned about to help keep them safe because we know that it's just that suicidal crisis. And if we can get people through that, that moment of crisis and then to seek professional help and to keep them safe for now by, by linking them to some meaning 
and staying with them if we can and linking them to professional help, then then they can recover. You know, most most people can and do recover, um, but it is just getting through that moment of crisis and the different ways that we can do that, but certainly equipping ourselves with knowledge and just showing that we care and creating a safe space um, can be so invaluable in saving somebody's life. I think it is, it's such a um, difficult subject to talk about. I'm not quite sure why it is such a difficult subject to talk about, but um, I know that the in the podcast that you um, I was listening to, it was just it was the direct question of you know are you contemplating suicide that meant you know it was very easy for, for when I asked are you are you okay it's a, it's a it's a closed question isn't it it's a yes or a no answer really whereas uh, uh, contemplating suicide is getting to the point and it'd be very easy to say no no I'm actually just really enjoying the view um, but we are quite it's very awkward to talk about it isn't it and I don't know quite how, how did you find it Sarah not coming into this I take it was was this the first time you were raising money for this particular um, subject? Yeah, it, it was. Um, but you know, I, my background in sort of the mental health side of things, um, you know, I have a history of of dealing with depression that has taken me to some very very dark places, and knowing you know the value of, of those, all those things and that you know Tara's talked about but you know learning the ways of managing my mental health um and you know the charity I was raising money for was a local organization called Mood Active and they bring exercise to people dealing with mild to moderate mental health challenges and people the way it wouldn't naturally be part of that toolkit like it is for me um as, as I'm sure it is for all of us here, but it's not for everyone. And it's then helping people sort of get back on their feet with using exercise. Um, so, you know, we, we were kind of at both ends of the spectrum as far as sort of mental health support and intervention from that sort of early preventative to crisis support, um, which sort of, you know, Tara pointed out. And I just, you know, I thought that was really really nice to have that that balance through that and then the, you know the conversations we were having you know we we're having it with you know with with people who have dealt with with suicide through to people who who had then the, their own sort of mental health challenges so it was you know and I learned a lot you know by you know listening to Tara um you know the conversations we had and the interviews you know I learned every single time um and I think you can see why she was head of comms um you know it's it's it was incredibly valuable for me um and yeah I learned a hell of a lot so so while so during the ride I mean cycling across Australia and you've said it before there's sections where you're not seeing anybody and having contact with with anyone but you've also said part of that experience was the people you met um and that's sort of some of those greatest memories um were you having so was it you having the bringing these conversations up as you went along across Australia with the communities you you stopped with or the people you met along the way was it sort of explaining or bringing up those difficult conversations was that kind of the plan well the, I mean the thing we had gear on which 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 had the logos and it had mood acting it had lifeline on it and lifeline is obviously such a recognized charity across Australia it instantly created, it sort of very naturally created the space for those conversations to happen without, it was never 
forced. It just it just came about. I think you'd agree with that, Tara. Yeah, I mean, I think the Lifeline is probably the most well-known charity. It's like Samaritans in in the UK. It's the national crisis line and and best known probably charity, I think, in, in the whole of the country. So that to have that logo on our gear, I think, really invited people to, invited people to have those conversations. Um, and so I think that was really, really helpful in retrospect to have that um, because it, it opens up the space immediately because otherwise, as you said, it's very, you, can't, you don't sort of go in and go, oh, so, you know, <laughs> how do we start a conversation about suicide, you know, because there are so many barriers to that. And what I've learned is that actually when you open up a space, you know, we know that about 50% of people will have some exposure to suicide in their lifetime. So, so it's, it's a fairly universal experience in some ways, and yet we never talk about it, um, you know. So I think, you know, and we talk so often about resilience, which is fantastic, and we so keenly talk about resilience, um, but we never talk about suicide, and yet all the skills of resilience, and so many of the skills of resilience are also the things that when, when they're lacking, uh, you know, can contribute to people taking their own life. So I think they should actually all be part of that same conversation. And, and as Sarah said, I think that was what was really important to us both was that we the messaging around how do you grow through those life's challenges and that kind of proactive kind of stuff, but also with mood active sitting in that kind of early intervention space and how do we and having those conversations in itself can, can stop people from getting to the crisis point. So that we, it felt like we were kind of looking at that whole spectrum from growth and and resilience through to um, early intervention and then to crisis support. So so there was a nice kind of symmetry to that. I think. I was just going to say you, you've talked about conversations with people that you bumped into along the journey, um, and you've mentioned your experience with a hippo in in Africa. Did you have any interesting wildlife? Uh, encounters even you know, on the on the on the cycling trip together any snakes or anything there was i mean we saw and smelt a lot of roadkill unfortunately um i'm sure that was really pleasant at 45 degrees <laughs> and you, can just, you just smell it from such a long way away and yeah, because it's really, you know, New South Wales, they come away and they, you know, they take the, the roadkill away in the middle of the Nullarbor and places like that. It, it doesn't happen. Um, I think the biggest challenge we had with the wildlife was the bloody flies. And I think Tara will definitely agree with this. They That was the one thing that nearly sent over the edge, right? They were just, and people, you know, if you haven't been to Australia and experienced the enthusiasm behind Australian flies and just the quantity of them. You just don't get it. Like they're just, we'd be riding and they'd be all over our back. And then as soon as you stop, they're kind of getting in your eyes and in your ears and in your mouth. I, we ate, you know, inadvertently ate so many of them as we were cycling along and you're trying to eat and they're just everywhere. And it's, yeah, they were just horrendous. And then when they, you know, sunset or whatever, they go away and then they're taken over by the mozzies. So it's like a tag team of just torture. <laughs> I don't know. Remember the resilience and the persistence of the flies around the red centre. They just, they just, it, it, you know, it, uh, yeah, they are permanent, aren't they? Quite amazing. Oh, and then we had, the then the other thing we did have to deal with was um, the mice plague that I don't know, I think you might probably heard about that in the UK, that's through the sort of western part of New South Wales, they're dealing with this mouse plague. Like it's just 
horrific and it it had died down a little bit by the time we got to the areas that were sort of stricken by it but the road was just it was like a, a steamroller come through a big party of of mice they were just flattened everywhere um we'd be like this one time we were cycling along and this mouse comes darting across the road underneath Tara's bike <laughs> she tried to like get out of the way by lifting her feet up but obviously they were cleated in so <laughs> couldn't um the only good thing well the one thing it did sort of drive us to it was a very good excuse as to why we weren't going to camp for um at least a few days because it's like I'm not waking up with with a bunch of mice coming out of my tent or anything like that so we did stay in a few motels and even in that we weren't safe like there was one time we were in one motel and sitting on the bed and I suddenly saw something and I'm like what was that and then this mouse it had come in it went back out it came in it went back out I just quickly grabbed one of the blankets and just shoved it under the door and it was like that thing is not coming back again so yeah and what about what about when you did the Nile? How were there any interesting wildlife experiences there? Uh, well, apart from the hippo. Apart from the hippo, I just <laughs> remember hearing a story about the snake somewhere. But, or was that in the Murray River? That was the Murray. That was um, the lowest Christmas day I'd ever had. So I was on the Murray. It was at the end of the drought um, when we were going through the bushfires, terrible bushfires here. So I was just about managing to stay ahead of those and. Because there was no water in the Murray, I had to keep, and I was sort of above um, the the reservoirs and the the dams. I just ended up having to keep dragging the get out, drag the kayak, get back in, paddle 100 meters, get out, and then there'd be some quite tricky areas where there might be a little bit of fast flowing water, but you would have trees in the way, so that made it quite dangerous. So I had this horrendous day, Christmas day. I just had no mobile reception whatsoever, so I couldn't message anyone. It's all I had was like the satellite phone, and that's going back to the ye oldie style of texting which just you lose the will to live when you're doing that right and so then I'd, I'd had a swim and I was like oh it's nice and had dinner and was sitting outside my tent as, as I'm sitting there this brown snake um which obviously being Australian is deadly comes around the corner um we were both equally as surprised to see each other and I think both moved equally as fast <laughs> I was quite impressed with myself that as I did leap up in the opposite direction that I managed to pick up the GPS which I could sort of message on and had my SOS button as I darted um Usain Bolt style very very quickly in the opposite direction um so yes yeah, so I was happy to say we didn't the only snakes we saw on this trip were not that I want to see dead wildlife, um, but the only snakes we saw were, were dead ones. But one of them was quite large, so I was quite pleased that we hadn't met it um, before it met its end. <laughs> wow. Um, and, then, and so to wind things up, what what are you both, looking forward, what are you both excited about um, in the year or so ahead? Maybe you can, ta- maybe you can take that one first, Tara. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm not sure what excited about is that, um, I mean, I am trying to complete my PhD, so um, I will be working on that. Although it is quite exciting, to be honest, because I'm, I'm at the point of my PhD where it's um, there's so much meaning to it um, and I can see it evolving. So I actually find that quite, when I get into it, it was really kind of nice to come back and get back into it and go, wow, there's just some incredible information in here. Um, so really, it, it does really focus on although I am planning to do a, a rowing race a surfboat rowing race that goes down the coast from um goes for seven days over new year from um 
Batemans Bay to Bega. So that's, um, I'm not sure how far it is, but it goes for seven days. So Individually? No, uh, so we do it as a as a crew, um, so uh, in a surfboat, um, and they do it every two years. And we were actually doing it two years ago, and we got two days in, and the bushfires hit. Um, so it was, um, yeah, we were had to abandon. Um, so I didn't get to do it then. So now, hopefully, I'll be able to do it this year. So that's my little bit of adventure that will fulfil that part of me. I think in amongst the PhD, but um, and then apart from that. Um, I don't think what I did say were both Sarah and I did manage to write a book about our, our trip in our heads as we were going. So whether that actually happened. I was gonna bring I was gonna bring this up because I'm still waiting for Sarah's book from the Nile. <laughs> and I was gonna ask you about that because I like well, Tara's already written a book, which I have actually just started reading, Tara. So I'm quite oh. looking forward to that. Um and I will be reading now after the the uh, praise that Sid was giving it after just but yeah so I was going to ask you you both I was going to say Tara are you going to write another book about your experience or or about whatever because I think you write amazingly well um and you have an incredible and I've only just started but an incredible ability to tell that story and really I'm sucked in already um but then my question to Sarah was like when is your book coming out Well, that's what it also leads into my answer for what's exciting in the next year. It's like finishing my book on Paddle the Nile. So it's kind of, I've done, you know, I've done a, a good draft. I've then been working with a manuscript editor. I've got her feedback. It's getting it now to a point that I've got my really polished the first few chapters to get out to some publishers. So, and that's, you know, how long's a piece of string. It just depends whether it gets in front of the right person at the right time. It is, you know, the kind of book that they're looking for. So I really hope within the next year that I do get that published um and what's the do we know what the title is going to be uh Paddle the Nile and what the sort of the um the um the sort of the secondary point I'm not I haven't completely landed on that yet um but I do want to keep it as Paddle the Nile because I've got the website all set up and still there for that So that quite sort of leads and would be quite easy to do that. Um, so we'll see. But yeah, Tara, we did talk about, you know, we there is a there's definitely a book in the in the cycling, cycling Oz. Um, whether it's one that we do together, I don't know, but I think we both Tara wants to finish a PhD. I need to finish the first book, and then we might think about what what the the, the cycling Oz book might look like. Well, if you did, I don't know how many vlog recordings you did for it, but one of the things that Mark uh, Beaumont did with his book on the uh, 80 days around the world is he just used the audio for the audio book. Anyway, he just, and I assume on the written book, it was just transcribed. He just used the audio from his vlogs where he's, you know, describing the days had on the side of the road or the days about to have. Um, So if you've got that content, you've probably got 50% of it written already. (laughs) <laughs> that kind of leads on to my another question I had for you was how's your dancing going because I've seen some <laughs> you're going to have a look at um, on Instagram Sarah Pedals if you scroll down you'll see the uh, our moves um, yes that was very funny <laughs> I did give a talk last night and I said thankfully I'm a bit better at cycling than I am at dancing <laughs> after I turned the video of us dancing <laughs> Like, hmm, yes, I think I'll, that I'll be adding that to my list of career choices somehow. <laughs> Adventurer, you know, mental health speaker, advocate, dancer. 
<laughs> so if listeners want to find out a bit more more about you both, um, uh, obviously we can put this information in the show notes, but where are they best to go to find out more about each of you and also the, the book that is already in existence? Um, so my website is um, tarajlal.com. Um, and then obviously we have the Cycling Oz website, which is still up there at the moment, although the blogs are extremely out of date because I haven't actually managed to, we haven't managed to finish um, doing the newsletters yet. So we're currently stuck somewhere in the middle of the nowhere, of the Nullarbor, according to that. But that is uh, Cycling Oz, so cyclingoz.com. Um, and the donation portals are still open if anybody wants to donate to our charities as well. Um, and Sarah has her own website. Um, um, so, and your and your book title, Tara, just so that people can track that down. Um, it's standing on my brother's shoulders, making peace with grief and suicide. Um, and that was actually went into second edition last last year. So it's got a new cover now to what it had initially in 2015. Brilliant. And we'll put a link in the show notes to, to that. Thank you. And Sarah, where where can people track you down? Yep. So my website is sarahdavis.co. So that's Sarah with an H, Davis, D-A-V-I-S. Um, like I said, my Instagram is Sarah Paddles, uh, which I didn't change during the ride. I know it was like, are we going to make it Sarah Paddles? And I'm like, no, because Sarah's going to stop pedaling and going back to pedaling. I was never <laughs> seeing the bike again. <laughs> Um, yeah, if anyone's looking for a, a nice gravel bike with full panniers, I have one that came from Vega Price. Um, <laughs> yeah, so those are probably the two best places to, to sort of follow or get in touch. Brilliant. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you both. It's a fantastic story. I love the idea of cycling across Australia, although you have put some dampeners on that for me. Uh, but it does, does sound like an amazing trip. Your, your paddling also sounds like an amazing trip. But also, more importantly, what, a, what an amazing cause you're, you've raised money for. So, um, so congratulations and thank you so much for being part of the Tribathlon podcast. Oh, thank, thank you. you so much. It's been great. It's been a pleasure. So, Sid, what did you make of that chat with Sarah and Tara? Oh, I mean, just, again, as always, like, so lucky to have the opportunity to talk to amazing people. Um, like, I obviously, I lived in Sydney for a few years and know Sarah and have been a massive fan of following her adventures from, from the Nile, which I think I was probably more worried about it than she was, but the sounds of it or something, I don't know, Um and then the Murray and then obviously the cycling. And, and I didn't know Tara, but I mean, it was absolutely amazing to, to talk to Tara. And I think just so powerful, like, you know, she, it was interesting. She said about, you know, people crossing the road to not to avoid talking to you because they don't know what to say. And, and I just sat there going, I mean, and you asked the questions, but I think I probably would have maybe kind of, asked a question but probably skirted around because again I just wouldn't know how to bring up the topic so the questions and then that the conversation and and what she went on went on to say about um mental health and, and suicide and, and what you can do to help and just yeah raising that conversation I just found really really um really fascinating and useful I think yeah, I thought there was some amazing advice in that. I, thought, I think, I think from um, from the the kind of cycling stuff, you know, their complementary skills and the importance of how those kind of sat together was was really interesting. Um, but also Tara's advice on you know, deal, 
people uh, dealing with that ripple effect of suicide, I thought was really, really good. Particularly yeah, was it 100, 135 people no, are affected amazing. by one person's suicide through yeah. the ripple effect. That blew me away. I hadn't, I mean, I knew there was that ripple effect, but I don't think I'd kind of quite, quite kind of connected or, or realized it was that, that big. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought, yeah, that was that was is, is a frightening number, isn't it? And but getting that getting, you know, for those people that are affected, getting that story out and you know, through expressive writing, I thought was really good advice because that's something that Carol's been doing more recently and has has been finding that really has helped her. Um and then the advice around, you know, finding somebody that might be contemplating suicide, I thought was was really good around making them feel cared for. So um yeah, loads of loads, loads of really good advice in there, as well as um, uh, a good feeling of what it was would have been like cycling across Oz. Yeah, and I think as well, like just again, like their experiences, and it's really sad that they had to go through that with with Leaf. Yeah, but almost that for him, they were the last two people, and they're such amazing generous big-hearted people out there doing what they're doing and I think the other thing like I've just been I'm just fascinated by people that do these sort of challenges in their backgrounds like um Tara you know both of them from the UK but her, her background history but then as a she's a firefighter which in itself is just freaking awesome and so much respect for but then the book she's written and the PhD she's doing and the rowing, like the number of accolades she has for um, like in the rotary world uh, for surf lifesaving um, is just incredible. And then like Sarah as well, she's had her own accomplishments in rowing and um, and then the desire to sort of, because I know she's talked about the reasons or, or one of the initial reasons, it might not have been the why at the end of it, but like for the Nile and stuff was this to be a first to be a first to do something and where that drive comes from and and stuff like that I just yeah I just find it fascinating I, I love it talking to people who've got those stories to tell and it, for me it's about yeah getting those stories out to more people and if you know Sarah again like sort of Sarah was inspired by seeing you know it's like when we talk when we talked to, to Chris Cook he saw Adrian Morehouse swimming and winning medals and Sarah saw uh, or researched and found other people that inspired her to be that first person to swim, uh, to swim, to paddle down, paddle the Nile. And then I get almost, it sounded like, well, Tara was inspired by Sarah sort of saying, I want to cycle across Australia. Do you want to come with me sort of thing? And it's, I think it's just getting those messages out to more and more people that, that you can a, a little bit, again, like Chris says, go out, Chris Cook said, you know, go out and create your own world, go and, go and make those opportunities yeah it. don't try and find it so yeah. yeah yeah no i thought it was it was it was brilliant and yeah there was a lot of um complimentary messages to the chris cook uh episode which was our was our last one but it, i i also love chatting to people like that whether it was you know um laura penhall being the the first um uh female crew paddling the uh rowing across the pacific or whether it was well, Sean Conway had a first, a fastest and the furthest. So first to swim from Land's End to John O'Groats. So I think they're, they're totally brilliant to, to listen to. And um, it definitely wants, every time I interview somebody, that's like, right, 
I need to get back to my bucket list. Where can I fit this stuff in? Like, yeah. I really want to cycle the length of Africa. But, we yeah. just need uh, the world to get its shit together a little bit more and make those things a little bit more feasible when you can actually do them. Not that, not that that should stop us planning and dreaming and setting those goals. I think that's really key and important as well. But yeah, it makes it makes it a little bit challenging at the moment. But well, maybe there's uh, lot, yeah, lots of things to do at home. It does, but equally, you know, these people are, are now doing their, their, they're being more innovative about doing it closer to mm. home. So like Sean yeah. Conway, I think as, as we speak, is doing 15 marathons in 15 days in 15 different national parks. And yeah. Mark Beaumont has just cycled Land's End to Jolly Groats nonstop, but in a relay with somebody. So hour on, yeah. hour off. And I think I think they've set a new record, but I don't, I don't know. Um, actually, I meant to look that up. So yeah, people are being more innovative about doing it a bit closer to home. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, Damien Hall and Beth Pascal going off and doing some incredible... Um, uh, running uh, ultra running yeah. so yeah and I, I was on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago when this one is released with um, a, a guy called Chris Halls and he's a sort of adventure cyclist and he just cycled the um, so not quite your lands and John O'Groats because that's north to south but he'd done uh, west to east in the UK uh, like the um, as you know all in one go pretty much I think it was took him less than 30 hours and over um, and still a lot of climbing um but yeah there's all sorts of things that can be done yeah very very close home but like i mean we're <laughs> we're saying that that sounds sort of to maybe the listeners going oh that's but these people are different they're you know it's these crazy ideas it's these big adventures and they're not though they're they are ordinary people um and i would say to listeners it doesn't you don't have to do anything like that it can be really small goal you know like literally setting yourself a 5k to run setting yeah, or, yourself or like captain tom walking around the garden 100 times yeah yeah it's, totally it's all relative yeah. isn't it it's just yeah. setting yourself yeah um challenges or goals because yeah. it's something to look forward to and something something to motivate you isn't it yeah and and i mean i know it's very easy for us to say it because we both believe in the power of sport, but, and, and again, Tara sort of touched on it about, you know, it's easy for us because we see how beneficial sport is for, and again, obviously physical, but not just physical for mental health and the number of organizations that are using now sport or not sport, but physical activity or just get, and it's, and again, it's not that you have to go and run a marathon. It's not that you're going to be like, the next world champion it's literally get out and walk a block around your house kind of thing get out you know just get out and be active and and use your environment to soak up the right endorphins that will help you get through that that dark patch yeah well Matt Pritchard said it as well didn't he He said you know instead of giving people pills they should send them out on go for a run every day for the next 14 days and totally agree yeah have the similar effect so yeah brilliant well well, that's Uh, let's wrap this one up but that's been a really interesting uh, episode um, something uh, touching on a topic that's very close to my heart Um, remember there is a precision hydration uh, discount code of tribathlon15 if you want to use that Uh, and in the meantime until the next episode keep on training
If you've enjoyed this Tribathlon podcast, please do go to Apple Podcasts and uh, rate it and review it. It massively helps us uh, to deliver a better podcast. It helps people find it as well. So yeah, go to Apple Podcasts, give us some feedback, give us a rating and a review, and please share it with your friends because ultimately that's what allows us to keep delivering more and more of these podcasts. For more amazing podcasts, but also to help you train, compete, and to build your tribe.